morning, everybody. Great to see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm part of our preaching team. And uh, this is week three of the series that we've been doing called Countercultural Convictions. We uh, began it by talking about how we counter culture, that uh, we might agree with a lot of different people about uh, our views related to uh, kind of what's going on in the culture, but we might have really kind of different approaches to how we approach it. So what we've said is at Redemption Gateway, uh, we're not trying to fortify ourselves against culture in a kind of like protection, we gotta run from it, uh, nor are we trying to accommodate culture and just kind of blend in and go along and go with the flow. We're not trying to do that. We're not trying to dominate over the culture, but rather we are trying to incarnate into the culture, speaking the language of the culture and confronting the culture with the truth of God's word. And so that's what we began to do last week. Uh, Last week, uh, Seth, who's also part of our preaching team, he looked at the issue of gender, uh, specifically gender identity. And what he said, kind of if I were to summarize a big idea, was that our bodies tell the truth about who we are. Our bodies tell the truth about who we are. And he read from Leviticus 18. At the beginning of Leviticus 18, God says, hey, listen, I don't want you to follow the traditions of the past that you knew in Egypt, and you're going to go into Canaan, and there's going to be lots of new traditions there. This isn't about you trying to be a a traditionalist or a progressive. This is about you trying to hear what I have to say. And that's what we're trying to do in this series. And so today, the topic is about sex and sexuality. And uh, I just want to say on the front end, my, my ask from you is that you would let this begin the conversation, not end it. There might be things you hear today that you go, uh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't really like that. I don't know if I see it exactly that way. And, and that's, that's okay. We want to let this begin the conversation. And so if you're feeling that way, we would, though, like to have it be a conversation. <laughs> We'd like the opportunity for you to talk with your small group leaders or uh, one of the pastors or one of the elders or someone on staff and to be able to say, hey, I've got questions. I want to talk. I want to process through this we would really uh, be open to that. So uh, here's, what it, here's one of the portions that it says in our uh, membership packet related to singleness and marriage. Here's what it says. It says, God intends sex to be only practiced within marriage and prohibits any sexual activity outside of this one man and one woman covenant, such as pornography, adultery, premarital sex, same-sex sexual activity. As followers of Jesus, we give our bodies to God, pursuing sexual fidelity as an avenue of, of faithfulness. So when I read this, uh, this paragraph from our official Redemption Church, all 10 congregations uh, share this same uh, conviction. Uh, I have two presuppositions when I come to this and when I come to this message. The first one is this, is that every single person in this room, including me, is or will be a sexual sinner. All of us. There's not a single person in this room who isn't convicted by this paragraph or, or won't be someday. So that's the first thing. I heard a theologian, somebody asked them, uh, are you against homosexuality? And his reply was, no, I'm against American sexuality. Because American sexuality is kind of like just distorted in every single direction. And so if that's true, then all of us kind of have to come a little bit of a sense of like, okay, this isn't talking about one single issue. Uh, This is implicating all of us. Uh, Here's the second presupposition I have about this is that our struggle to embrace this vision of sex, this Christian vision of sex, either intellectually in terms of what we think is true, or functionally, our our struggle to embrace it 
is really not about wondering if it's true, but wondering if it's beautiful and worth it. Now, I realize some of you are wrestling with if it's true, and we could have that conversation. I feel like we've had that conversation a number of times over the history of our church from the pulpit. And so I don't feel as convinced today to try to go, let me show you that it's true, although I think you'll see it from the scripture, but really to say the Christian vision of sexuality is more compelling and more beautiful than we often think about. And so that's what we want to try to do today. So here's where we're going to go in today's message is we're going to see that the Christian understanding of sex is a window into the structure of creation. It's a window into God's heart for diversity in union. And it's an invitation to us into countercultural living. So that's where we're going to go today. Let's pray together. Father, we come today uh, thankful for you, thankful that you are our God. Thankful that because of Christ, we, we don't stand at a distance just calling you God, but we call you Father. And God, though we're all implicated by sexual sins, we're not defined by them. So Lord, thank you today for the grace of Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of Jesus. Thank you for the cleansing and the welcoming of Jesus. And God, even as I stand here preaching, feeling accused by the enemy, for my own shortcomings. And even as we sit here and listen to your word and feel accused, God, would you set us free today? Would you give us hope today? Would you give us a new vision today? Would you give us the cleansing and grace that we need? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so for these first two uh, parts of this sermon, I am like majorly, majorly borrowing uh, from one of our pastors at Redemption Tempe, Josh Butler. Uh, Josh will be part of the Inside Redemption live event. And um, there's just so much that I'm stealing from him in these first two points of this sermon that I just am going to tell you up front, I'm just stealing a ton of it from him. I'm not going to just keep quoting him over and over and keep looking at his goofy picture. I'm not going to do that. So... Uh, it's one of the blessings, though, of being in redemption. Actually, Josh just finished writing a book about the beauty of Christian sexuality. He's working to get it published now. And so um, there's just these sort of gifts like that where you go, man, I, when I hear him talk about it, I go, I got to just steal your stuff. So that's what I'm going to do here in this first part. All right. So uh, number one, the Christian understanding of sex is a window into the structure of creation. Get this. Genesis 1.1 is the most controversial thing Christians believe about sex. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God created the heavens and the earth, if God is the creator, if those words are true, that in the beginning God created, then what it means is that God gets to speak about it. God gets to define it. And that makes it not just the most controversial thing we believe about sex, it means it's the most controversial thing we believe about anything. That there is a God who made it, who owns it, and who gets to define what is true. Now what's amazing is God begins to create what you see in Genesis chapter 1 is that Genesis 1 unfolds these four complementary pairs as, as creation begins to, to happen through the word of God speaking. We see these four complementary pairs. We see heaven and earth, we see night and day, we see land and sea, and we see male and female. First, let's look at this, heaven and earth. That's the first one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the heavens are glorious on their own and the earth is wonderful on its own. But think about this, if uh, God created uh, the earth above and the earth below, you'd just be in a cave. How many of you like to be in caves? 
Not for very long, right? If God just created the heavens above and the heavens below, ah, right? Like that's not very fun for a while. And so what God does is he creates the heavens above and the earth below. And what we're going to see is that in each of these complementary pairs, when these things come together, it's majestic. So what happens when heaven and earth comes together? You get the mountaintop. The mountaintop. Now, the mountaintop is significant. The ancient people looked up to the mountaintop in every culture and still do as sacred space. The Bible includes that as well. Jerusalem sits atop Mount Zion. Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai. Elijah calls down fire on Mount Carmel. Jesus is gloriously transformed, his glory revealed in the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? We talk in this language, we talk about having a mountaintop experience. The mountaintop experience is where you hear from God with clarity and perspective and you see things as they really are. When, when heaven meets earth, it's glorious. The heavens represent God's space and the earth is our space. And the heavens and the earth represent this coming together that God meets us in our space. This is why Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, he says this. He says, pray this way. On earth as it is in heaven. God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What is he praying for? He's praying for the union of heaven and earth. That's the first pair. The second pair is night and day. Night is a wonderful thing. It's amazing uh, to be able to sleep out under the stars. I was on a camping trip last weekend and just to look up at the bright night sky. It's amazing. And day is wonderful unless you live in Arizona half the year. But, but, but day theoretically, like in a few months, it'll be wonderful, right? But imagine if it was all night or all day. I spent a couple summers in Alaska and in Alaska in the summer, it's just day all the time. And that actually gets kind of old. In Alaska in the winter, it's night all the time and people literally get depressed and crazy. But think about it. What happens when night and day come together? Something mesmerizing happens at sunset and at sunrise. When night and day come together, you look out the window and you call to your family and you say, hey, you guys got to get out of the house and come see this. Look at this. Look, God is a Bronco fan. Look, I knew. Like, Heaven and earth comes together. The sphere of energizing light penetrates the border of the horizon and there is an explosion of delightful color in the sky. Now listen, throughout this, this is one of the things I will directly quote Josh on, is, is he said this, the point of this is not to sexualize creation, it's to creationize sex. It's not to sexualize creation, it's to creationize sex. When the heavens and earth come together, it's majestic. When night and day come together, it's majestic. Well, here's the third pair that you see in Genesis 1 is the land and the sea. The land and the sea. What happens when those two come together? The beach. The beach. The most beautiful, the most expensive real estate anywhere on earth is the beach. Right, you go to the beach, I, I go to the beach whenever I can, and it's not enough, but whenever I get a chance to go, and what amazes me is I walk up and down the beach, is you always just see people sort of standing there, drinking a cup of coffee, looking at it. Why? 
Because it's majestic when land and sea come together. And it's not just at the ocean, right? You see that cities are built on rivers. You see that cabins are often tried to be built on lakes. What is a waterfall except for that beautiful image of water and rock connecting? That's what a beautiful waterfall is. What is the Grand Canyon except land carved out by water? What's amazing about even this picture of the Grand Canyon here is you kind of get all three pairs, don't you? Heavens and earth, night and day, land and sea, which is why people literally come from all over the world to look at the Grand Canyon at sunset. It's spectacular. Where soil and water come together, life emerges. Where river and rock caress, a unique beauty is formed. Heaven and earth, night and day, land and sea, and finally, God saves his best for last, male and female. It says in Genesis 1:27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. This uh, Genesis 1 gets sort of uh, zoomed in on and put into slow motion in what we read a moment ago in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, in verse 24, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Male and female, this complementary pair, that's what it means when, uh, when God says to Adam, I'll make a helper fit for you, a helper corresponding to you. It's a complementary pair. And when male and female come together in the covenant of marriage, it is explosively beautiful. It's glorious. It's majestic. It takes your breath away. And in a culture that says that sex is just about personal expression or fulfillment, the Bible shows us that sex is designed to point to a greater reality, to a greater picture. So get this, in a way then we would say that sex is sacred and it's transcendent. It's to be approached with care and with reverence. And it's therefore inherently good. Just like heaven and earth and night and day land and sea. Sex is in the relationship of a marriage between a man and a woman. It is beautiful. It is good. It is exactly how God intended it to be. And yet the culture is constantly, of course, sin is constantly, get this, Satan can never create anything bad. He can only distort what God had created good. And so sin is a parasite. It attaches to something good and it manipulates and destroys it. And all of us, in a sense, have been victims of that reality and have been perpetrators of that reality. But if sex is a window, it's not just a window into the structure of God's good creation. It's also a window into God's heart for diversity in union. Diversity in union. This is the reality that you see over and over in the Bible is that God loves diversity in union. God himself, if you think about this, is a diversity in union. He is Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet he's one God. This is a proclamation to the world that God is love. Because God is triune, he is inherently loving. Think about this for a moment. A, a, a not triune God, like say Allah, isn't inherently loving because in order to love, he would have to create something to love. 
But God, in a triune reality, is inherently a proclamation of love. God is Father and Son and Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit, but they're one. Jesus himself is also diversity and union. Think about this. He is fully God, and he's fully man. Not 50-50, but 100-100. Most of the, the heresies, most of the false teachings of the early church were really about that issue. There was such a low view of, of the human body that it was assumed there was no way that a holy God could actually inhabit a human body, and yet he did. And what do you find in the incarnation of Jesus but the frailty of humanity, a baby born in a manger, the frailty of humanity with the invincibility of divinity? It's diversity and union. What if we fast forward not from Genesis 1 and 2, but to the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22? What do we find there? Well, here's what we find there. We find a wedding feast. And what do weddings celebrate? Union. And what do we find in Revelation 21 and 22? We find the union of heaven and earth as God's dwelling comes down to be with humanity. We find the union of east and west as the nations stream into God's holy city to feast. We find the union of the weak and the strong as Jesus wipes away the tears from the eyes of the suffering and as kings lay their crowns at his feet. We find the union of people from every tongue and tribe and nation having all the diversity of their cultures, but saved by grace and saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So the, the creation of, of sex in marriage is a diversity in union. It's a male and a female uniting together, diversity in union. And if you, if you think about this, okay, that, that then explains why the sexual sins that we're all dealing with are sins. Think about this for a moment. Some of, uh, some of the sexual sins violate the union side, right? So, so what is adultery? Adultery, there's still diversity, but, but it's a violation of the union. That, that commitment, that covenant, that I will be with you and you only, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live, gets broken. And that's why it's sin. Lust Jesus says is similar in Matthew 5, 28, Jesus says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the lust that we have when we objectify someone for our own sexual fantasy, what that is, Jesus says, is that's just the seed form of adultery. But if it, if it had time and permission to grow, when it grew, it would become adultery. And what is that? Jesus says it's the breaking of the union. That's why it's sin. That's why it's wrong. That's why it would be better for you to tear out your eyes, to fight it. Because it's breaking God's good gift of sex. This explains the sin of unauthorized divorce in the same way. This is unauthorized divorce is breaking this union. Je Jesus says in Matthew 19, he says what God has joined together, a man should not separate. It's interesting, his teaching there is so significant that actually the disciples, when they hear it, they say, well then, maybe no one should get married. This union's such a big deal. And if you have experienced divorce yourself, 
especially as a kid, if you talk to kids who are experiencing divorce, what will they describe it as? They'll describe it as though their world is unraveling. And us as adults, we're worried about the logistics and who's going to take who on what weekends and how's this all going to work. But to them, it feels like their world's unraveling. Why? Because it is. Because marriage is this picture of diversity and union. This is why heterosexual sex of any kind is a sin. Why living together without being married and being sexually active, it's a sin. Why? Because it's violating the union. The uniting of bodies is designed to take place in the context of the uniting of lives. So this diversity and union, it explains sin. So heterosexual sex of any kind outside of marriage, living together, that's a sin. Why? Because the uniting of bodies is designed to take place in the context of the uniting of lives. What all these things do, adultery, lust, unauthorized divorce, heterosexual sex outside of marriage, is they show a false gospel. Because Christ is the one who's faithful to his church. Christ is the one who stays united to his church. Other sins violate the diversity side. This is where you get into same-sex sexual activity. It violates the diversity side. That's the argument that Paul's making in Romans chapter 1, where in Romans chapter 1, what he's saying is that this exchange has taken place, that as human beings have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, they've also made all sorts of other exchanges. And one of the exchanges, therefore, is that human beings have, have exchanged natural relationships, was what Paul is calling heterosexual relationships, for those that are contrary to nature is his language. Women exchanging relationships with men for other women and so forth. Is the question or is the problem that the parts just don't fit? No. The problem is they're not just parts. This is speaking to a, to a bigger reality. It, our, our parts... And our sexual activity is bearing witness to the goodness of God and the goodness of the world and the hope of the gospel. That's what it's doing. Another sin, like pornography, it violates both. Think about, don't think too deeply about this, but think about the using of pornography. What's happening? You're by yourself, almost always, violating diversity. And you're lusting and fantasizing about people who are not your spouse, sometimes many of people. And, and, and maybe, I, I just wonder if maybe one of the reasons pornography is so addictive is because if the enemy can get us addicted to that, then all sorts of breakdowns start to happen. The Christian understanding of sex is a window into God's heart for diversity and union. And finally, number three, the Christian understanding of sex invites us to countercultural living. This is an invitation by God into countercultural living. And we're going to talk about how we can counterculture in four ways. The first one is this, is that we counterculture by seeing sex as more important and less important than the culture says. 
Think about this for a moment, right? On one hand, if you have this understanding of sex from Genesis 1 and 2, what you realize is that sex is more important than the culture we give it credit to because it's transcendent and it's sacred and it's special and it's pointing to some beautiful reality of God. And on the other hand, what you see is that it's less important because the culture wants to say that sex is everything, and that your sexual desires are everything, and that your sexual needs are everything, and that your sexual identity is everything. And, and, and the Christian view says, no, 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 no. This doesn't define me, my sexuality. What defines me is that I'm an image bearer of God. What defines me is that I've been washed by the blood of the lamb. What defines me is that I'm a follower of Jesus. And think about this, the culture tells us that you can't be truly human, you can't be fully human unless you are sexually satisfied. And I wanna tell you today that that is heresy. Here's why. Because for us as followers of Jesus, we're saying our life is, is based on Christ. And Christ never expressed himself sexually. Jesus was single, and Jesus was pure, and Jesus had zero sexual activity in his life. And so if we're going to say that you can't be truly human unless you express yourself sexually, what you're saying is that Jesus Christ was not fully human. But the reality is Jesus was more human, I think you could argue, than anybody because he actually lived the way God created us to live. He was more human and get this, Jesus gave up sex and marriage to give his life for what sex and marriage represent, which is communion with us. See, see, sex is just to point to the greater reality. And so here's what I want to tell you. If you're single, if you're widowed, maybe you're single and you want to be, and that's the choice you're making. Maybe you're, you'd love to be married, but, but you're not yet. Maybe you have same-sex desires and desire for same-sex relationships, and you're saying, you know what, because of faithfulness to Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to live single. And here's what I want to tell you, and I, and I don't want to make it sound like any of those situations ends up, well, it's just this easy. But here's the reality. You can have the reality without the sign. The reality is that you get communion with Jesus. You get his love and his affection and his welcome and his grace and his presence in your life every day by his spirit. And you don't need marriage, right? Listen, we are not saved by marriage. We are saved by grace into union with Christ that is pictured by marriage. Secondly, we counter culture by pursuing deep friendship without it being sexualized. There's this verse in uh, second, or first, uh, Samuel 18. We're not going to put it on the screen. I'll just read it to you. It says, The soul of Jonathan, Jonathan was the son of King Saul, same age as David. It says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. If you read First and Second Samuel, you see this beautiful picture of the, the friendship, the, I think you could even say the close, intimate friendship of Jonathan and David. And here's how sexualized our culture is, is that modern people can't read that without thinking that Jonathan and David had some kind of fling going. And that's us reading our over-sexualized everything into the text. 
But what it's saying is that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, that you can have non-sexual, intimate friendship. Oh, friends, listen, our, our church needs this. And our culture needs this. So many of us men, you just read study after study, and you don't have to read studies, you just talk to men. We're lonely. And some of it is we feel like if we ever at all get a little bit kind of intimate, sharing some vulnerability, sharing some weakness, sharing some need. If we ever do that with, with another guy, a lot of us, you know, super macho, you know, whatever, go, well, that's gay. No. That's the way God made friendship to be. Some of us were very dysfunctional in our relationships with the opposite sex. We, we can't have a friendship with someone who's, if, if you're a man, you can't have a friendship with someone who's a woman. Or if you're a woman, you can't have a friendship with someone who's a man. And get this, I realize based on our stories and based on our history and based on different things, there might be wise steps to take to protect yourself and that sort of thing. But the idea that we can't function in some kind of friendship with a man and a woman who aren't married, that's a lie from an over-sexualized culture. The Bible says that we're supposed to treat one another as brothers and sisters. Paul tells Timothy, treat, treat older women with respect. Treat, treat younger women with, with purity like they're your sisters. We, the people of God, we're going to counter culture by pursuing real friendship without it being sexualized. And here's the thing. If you're single, here's what you know. You know that you could live without sex, but you cannot live without friendship. You can't live alone. And I don't mean just by yourself. I mean, you can't live isolated and disconnected and unknown and unloved and uncared for. And so we, the church of all people, need to respond by creating a countercultural community of friendship that's knit together in love without assuming that every relationship ends in some sort of sexual deviance. And yet, here's what I'm aware of. Because of the parasitic nature of sin, so much of it does. So we have to be wise as serpents, but also innocent as doves. Third, we are going to counter culture by cultivating oneness in our marriages. Oneness in our marriages. That, that's what it, it says in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The purpose of marriage is oneness, it's intimacy, it's closeness. And so we have some temptations we have to resist. We have to resist. If you're married, you have to resist the temptation to just have parallel lives. Your friends and your roommates, and you get along fine, but you do your thing and they do their thing. You got to resist that. We, we got to resist the temptation to be too busy for each other. We got to resist the temptations that come from distraction, distracted by our phones, distracted by what's going on in the world, distracted by children. Are you in an amen? We married people as followers of Jesus. We have to resist the temptation to transactionalize sex. We're just like a commodity we'll give or withhold from one another if we pay the right price. We need to resist the temptation to weaponize sex. 
We need to resist the temptation of some of you have frequent sex with very little closeness. And you think, well, I'm doing better than the people that are married, but they never have sex. And I don't know if you are or not. That's not what it's about. What it's about is oneness. We need to resist secret lives of fantasy. We need to resist selfishness and inconsideration. That's what we're going to do as Jesus invites us into a counterculture way of living. We're going to pursue oneness. We're going to pursue intimacy. We're going to share with one another. We're going to experience a relationship of forgiving. Because listen, you can't have oneness until there's some forgiveness. And you often can't have forgiveness until there's some repentance. So we're going to create marriages of repentance and of forgiveness, and of sharing, and of belonging, and of talking, and of honoring, and of enjoying, and of pursuing. And, and, and here's what I know. I know some of us hear that and we're like, you know, man, I believed that 20 years ago. But what's done is done. And it didn't work out that way for me. And I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to grind it out. But I've tried. And it ain't going to happen. And I, and I don't want to sit up here and go like, well, if you just, then it would all be better. Because I assume you've tried. But here's what I'm going to tell you is that God cares about your marriage more than you do, because your marriage is a witness to the gospel that he speaks to the world. And so he's going to provide resources, and God is the God who can resurrect a dead marriage. And I also want to tell you, we're here to help. We provide classes. We have a road to intimacy class going right now. We have uh, counseling. We have community. We have the opportunity for you to, to get help, to not go this road alone. We want to help. And here's the last invitation that this invites us to, is that we counter culture by pursuing courageous hope. Some of us, we just can't imagine that we actually could surrender our sexual desires. We can't imagine that we actually could obey the Lord in this area. Some of you, it's just been so hard to listen to this whole sermon because all you hear is the accusation, the accusation, the accusation. The reminder, the reminder, the reminder. Some of you, whenever you hear the word sin, you think of whatever your sexual sin is because you have not thought in any other categories because it's been so dominant. And what I want to tell you today is that it's going to take courage. It's going to be, let's be clear, this will not be easy. It will take courage. But Jesus is inviting us in by his death and his resurrection to pursue courage and hope. One of the best books I've read in the last 10 years is by Rosaria Butterfield. It's called The uh, Confessions of an Unlikely Convert or something like that. And uh, Rosaria Butterfield was a, a professor at Syracuse in women's studies, and she was living a lesbian life. And through friendship with a pastor and his wife and many, many times coming over for soup and conversation... At some point, she gave her heart to Jesus. The biblical word for that is conversion. And, and I, hear, I want you to hear the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield. Here's what she has to say about the courage that it takes. She says this, Conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. Although grateful, I did not perceive conversion to be a blessing. It was a train wreck 
When God gave me the strength to follow him, I didn't stop feeling like a lesbian. I've discovered that the Lord doesn't change my feelings until I obey him. At this time, though, obeying in faith to me felt like throwing myself off a cliff. Faith that endures is heroic, not sentimental. I couldn't believe how exhausting it was to daily put Christ before me. I'm grateful, though, that when I heard the Lord's call on my life and I wanted to hedge my bets, keep my girlfriend, and just add a little God to my life, I had a pastor and friends in the Lord who asked nothing less of me than that I die to myself. This will take courage, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to love you enough to say you will have to die to yourself. You will have to die to the lie of culture that says that who you are is your sexuality and your sin. It is not. So I'm going to call us to courage. But listen, friends, we have every reason to hope. God has made us in his image, the Bible says, which means that we are royalty. We are sons and daughters of God. I've got this uh, almost five-year-old guy, Hank. You guys hear me talk about him. And I mean, you just sort of watch him live his life and he believes that he has greatness in him. I mean, w- 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 my, my wife was at Costco with him the other day and you know, they're doing the Halloween costumes and he sees Captain America. He's like, Mom, Mom, I gotta have this. You know, and he's the youngest, so she's a sucker, and so she bought it for him. And, you know, and you send, send me the picture, and it's like, he's got greatness in him. And listen, it's not because he's a boy, it's because he's an image bearer. And somewhere along the way, all the sin that's done to us and all the sin that we contribute to convinces us that we no longer have that greatness in us. That we're nothing but our mistakes and we're nothing than our past and we're nothing than our shame. And those are lies, friends. We have a hope. We are image bearers of God. And it's better than that because in Christ, we're not just image bearers of God, but your past sin, your current sin, your future sin does not define you. Here's what Ray Ortland says in his wonderful book, The Death of Porn. He says this, God's love is too great to be limited to what you deserve. God gives his best to those who deserve his worst. Maybe you are a mess, but with Jesus, you're a messy winner because you're his mess. Do you really think after the cross that your shame drives God away? No. You think you're disgusting to him? Wrong again. The worst things about you are where he loves you most tenderly. Let me say that sentence again. The worst things about you are where he loves you most tenderly. God welcomes high-maintenance sinners who keep coming back to him for more mercy and more mercy and more mercy multiple times every day. He isn't tired and he isn't tired of you. Let this drive us to Jesus. And not just drive us in a, but let let us just see this is the Lord Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Are you weary and heavy laden with your sexuality? Are you weary and heavy laden with your sin? Are you weary and heavy laden? He's ready to welcome you. He's ready to invite you. He's ready to walk with you.
You might be a mess, but you're his mess. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus and the welcome that we receive in him. Thank you for the picture, beautiful and glorious and compelling, of your vision for sex. God, we just, we fumble it in so many ways, and uh, we ask for your kindness and grace to heal us and to restore us and to forgive us and to give us courageous hope. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.